0: Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, friends, I now invite you to hear the Easter story. From John's gospel, we'll be reading beginning in chapter 20, verse 1. And as I read, I invite you to listen for the word of God for us today. John writes, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb so Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, "If they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him." Then Peter and the other disciple, they set out towards the tomb. The two were running together, but but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. The other disciple bent down to, to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb Peter saw the, wrapping, the linen wrappings there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, but it was not lying with the other wrappings, it was rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then these disciples returned to their homes. But Mary, she stood weeping outside of the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. The angel said to Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? Mary said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and, and I don't know where they've laid him. When Mary had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For for whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, Mary said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She told them that he had said these things to her. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, And the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious Creator God, God who was. God who shall be, break anew afresh into our present. Meet us here, continue to meet us through this liturgy, through these songs, through this scripture, through your word, God. Speak to us as we need to be spoken to. Move in us as we need to be moved. God, may you take these words that I have prepared and make them be your word for your people in this time. Speak through them and when necessary, in spite of me. And as I preach, God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts in this time would indeed be found good, right, pleasing and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, our redeemer, God, our savior, In Christ, we pray. And everyone said and or typed, amen. Well, friends, it has been said essentially to the point of redundancy by now that 2020 was a year. And I'm not here this morning to rehash that reality with you. Instead, what I'd like us to do is to think back to one particular dimension to 2020 that may easily get overlooked as we think about the pandemic and its scope globally. Because as we were talking about Eastertide this year at Eastside, one of the things that came to to our mind in our conversation and our hearts as this staff, as we were discussing this, was this idea that there were some really, really bad wildfires this past year. Not only in our country, but but throughout the world, there were really bad wildfires. California, Oregon, Australia, just to name some of them. And I realized that this morning, this might seem or feel like an odd place for me to begin an Easter message to talk about wildfires from the previous year. But, but, but the more I thought about these wildfires and, and Roxy started thinking about them from, from her sort of ecological standpoint, we asked questions about where's the metaphor here for, for maybe what we've experienced as individuals or as communities or as a country Where's the metaphor here even for, for what happens for our planet on the other side of sort of the, the metaphoric forest fire of, of this COVID-19 disaster? And what does life look like on the other side of it? What does life look like after the death that so many have experienced? This also got me just to thinking about fire more generally, because fire, like water and like wind and like so many realities in our natural created world, when it's related to well and properly, it's a wonderful thing. Fires are used throughout the world to keep homes warm in the wintertime. Fire is used for, for all kinds of different positive things, from cooking our food to heating and boiling water to keeping our homes warm at the same time we have we have fire stations on so many corners throughout our country and our world for a reason because we know that fire also is this double-edged sword that can so quickly turn from being this incredibly remarkably helpful part of our natural world to also being this devastating reality when we don't relate to it properly when we don't relate to it in the way that god intended and our forestry friends throughout the world, but, but more specifically in our own country. They, they've been trying to preach this word to the broader culture for some time now and to those who, who make law and, 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 and think about the geographies of where people live and how they live and how we sort of spread out in different areas of our country. And, and those who understand forestry have been, been sounding the alarm for, for decades. Saying that the way that the U.S. is living into these large swaths of forest is not going to be healthy, it's not going to work out in the long term, and, and we're sort of putting, putting a lot into the future where things could go really, really wrong. And over the last several years, we have, have experienced, we have watched those of us who who either live on the West Coast or have friends or family. I have family that live in, live in the Los Angeles area. Last summer, they talked about looking up into the sky and walking out their doors and just smelling the smell of, of smoke and smoldering and looking into the sky and seeing cl- the, the sky literally clouded by the fires. I can't even imagine being a person who lived in, a, in the path of one of these, these forest fires in California or in Oregon, at the same time as dealing with the hardships of the pandemic. It's hard to even imagine what folks would be going through to lose their home in the midst of a pandemic and in just how much starting over, resetting, starting at zero would have to take place. From literal forest fires blazing through the west to the metaphorical forest fires of, of what we continue to see as racial injustice in this country. This sort of blazing and, and, and unmitigated burning of, of increasing hate and, and division. The forest fires of, of the, the past election cycle that, that have, were by far the most divisive, divisive that I have seen in my lifetime. It's hard for us collectively not to a little bit feel like the world is a bit on, on fire. Which I know, this all kind of sounds like a bit of a downer for an Easter Sunday sermon. But downer as it may be, I also couldn't help but think about it more specifically in terms of Holy Week, especially this this past week as we walked through Holy Week and journeyed through it together as a community with our own meditations on Saturday, on Friday, and on Thursday. And it really, it became really poignant this year that, that Jesus, in his last week of ministry, he really did kind of set, set things on fire with some intentionality. I mean, if you, if you go back to last Sunday and Palm Sunday and just think about what he does, he parades into Jerusalem on the back of a colt or a donkey in line with the ancient Hebrew prophecies about what the Messiah was to do, and he does it, he times it most likely at the same time as, as Pilate, the Roman governor, would have been coming into Jerusalem from the west, Jesus is coming in from the east as a counter-king, as a counter-empire, prophetically showing that he is Israel's true guiding king. Jesus, at the beginning of Holy Week, is already tossing sparks into the dryness, into the, the dry leaves of Jerusalem beginning on Palm Sunday, but, that, but that's just the beginning, right? Then he does this remarkably inflammatory thing. He heads, he heads straight to the temple, which is at the heart of the Jewish political and religious and cultural reality. And he doesn't, doesn't do this on some off day, but he does this most likely the first day of the Passover when all the people, all the Jewish diaspora would have piled into Jerusalem, would have been present and it's in that context that Jesus goes to the, to the temple and engages in this prophetic guerrilla theater where he drives the sacrifices, the, the animals that have yet to be sacrificed out of the temple, and he turns over the tables of the coin changers, those who were exchanging the currency of those who lived in other geographies so that they would have the proper currency to be able to use it in the temple. Jesus flips over their tables and is essentially announcing the prophetic end to the temple system as it was. This is huge. And, he, and he's doing it during Passover. After he has just rode into Jerusalem on, on a donkey, on a colt, the same time that, that the empire was coming in from the other side to oversee the Passover, Jesus, he's not just throwing sparks at this point, but when he enters the temple, he's sort of, taking a, a, a hot burning ember and, and, and intentionally throwing it in a bed of dry leaves in the middle, in the heart of the whole thing. And even before all of this, Jesus, we know by reading the Gospels and reading his dialogues, that he, he engages in all sorts of polemical, theological, political, religious debate with the, the reigning religious Jewish people of the day, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he has these public arguments throughout his ministry, but they're, they're kind of more contained. And they're, oftentimes they're often the outstretches of civilization at that time. But, but here, everything's moved into the heart, into the center of the, of the holy city, in the center of the temple, and in the center of the most important festival of the Jewish year, that of Passover, the, the festival where the Jewish people remember God's liberating acts setting free the enslaved Hebrew people from the old dominion, from the old world superpower, Egypt, Pharaoh. And now they're celebrating, observing this remembrance in the midst of also and now in a new way being held captive by Rome, the world's new superpower, remembering the freedom that God brings to God's people. Jesus, in this week of of Passover that we celebrate as Holy Week, from the beginning of it, he has incited Caesar, he has incited Herod, at the temple he has incited the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. Jesus is kind of setting things on fire to his right, to his left, in front of him and behind him. And this reality is one that we see kind of sealing his fate really quickly. Because by Good Friday, his disciples who, 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 they believed, they had hoped that he was going to be this political revolutionary, they see him raised up, nailed to what was the, the Roman tool of public humiliation and shame and execution, the cross, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, there's not a lot of time in between those two realities and Jesus is nailed to a cross. The flames had, had spread to Jesus himself, his own life, his own reality quickly being consumed by the wrath, the hatred, the, the anger of those in power. And the problem, of course, with this whole thing is that what, what even Rome would have known kind of as armchair theologians themselves knowing a little bit about what Jewish people believed was that you couldn't both be the Jewish Messiah, right? The coming Jewish Messiah who would liberate the Israelites and at the same time be nailed to a Roman cross. You couldn't be the Messiah and be dead. The two were incompatible. And, and Rome knew that, and the Jewish elites knew that, and the people knew that, and yes, Jesus' disciples knew this. Which means the Holy, Holy Week was itself its own kind of kind of blaze, its own forest fire that was at least seemingly burning the ministry of the Christ quickly to the ground. Like a burst of, of dried out fall leaves... All of this work that the disciples and the Christ, that Jesus had done together up into this moment, building this movement, it seemed like it was all just coming to this hard stop on Good Friday with this cross, with Rome's intervention saying, enough is enough, Jesus. And... And, of course, this left the, the disciples in a really awkward, uncomfortable position because not only were they grieving the loss of their rabbi, their teacher, their master, but but what Peter knew, which is why he vehemently denies the Christ with such intensity, is, is he knows that he could be indicted and he could be brought in as an accomplice to this Jesus. He knows that he and all of the disciples could indeed be executed as well so not only are the disciples feeling grief but they're feeling fear because they may be brought in to this and now they don't know what even to make of the whole reality maybe they would have been okay to die for the living messiah but now after the crucifixion where do they where do they stand with the whole thing do they even know probably not which is kind of the whole point of Holy Saturday, right? It's a little bit like sitting after the fire has, has sort of, the intensity of the flame has, has the inferno's kind of poured through and now it's just sort of smoldering and you go back to see what's left of your house and you sort of sit yourself down in the, in the wake of what was and you look around and you see the ash And you wonder to yourself, now what? What in the world comes next after this? The disciples, they're wondering, is Rome searching for them actively right now to execute them as well? Holy Saturday is kind of like the disciples sitting in the smoldering ashes of this fire that had had overwhelmed and consumed the ministry of Jesus and Jesus himself. The Disciples had to be thinking to themselves as, as they were fearfully gathered together on Holy Saturday. Man, but Jesus, he, he did turn water into wine. We saw him heal so many sick people in ways that nobody should have been able to do. We partook of the feeding of the 5,000. The man's teaching was so brilliant it was like he was receiving wisdom from God and let's not forget to mention Jesus he did raise his friend our friend Lazarus back from the dead after he'd been gone for days it's not to, to say the disciples weren't perplexed and confused because they knew they had witnessed and observed and been present to the power of the Christ at work but now they're, they're grappling with the Cognitive dissonance of a dead Messiah can't be the Messiah. What does this mean? What does it mean that this man who had the power to heal other people, right? To save others, to bring goodness and justice into the world, when, it, when that injustice came after him, it was able to take him out. What does that mean? Where is God in the smoldering dumpster fire of a mess? on Holy Saturday, this reality that we reflect on each year. Where is God and what may feel like for many of you, this dumpster fire of a mess of the world post-pandemic? Maybe your life as an individual, your community, your country, I don't know. I think this is precisely the question that we gather each year to ask on Easter Sunday. Yes, the fires are different and the circumstances change in intensity and in details. And this year, the circumstances, we come to them collectively and there's a lot of harshness. There's been a lot of darkness. There's been a lot of challenge. There's been a lot of loss and a lot of death. And we come to the table this morning and we bring all that with us to the smoldering, if you'd like, dumpster fire of a post-pandemic world asking what now? I don't know if uh, Mary Magdalene, I don't know if she was an early riser or my suspicion is that she never fell asleep on Saturday night and she just laid there kind of like, I might as well get up and do something at three in the morning or whatever time she woke up or got up and decided that Somebody needed to go to the tomb and finish the embalming process because sunset happened too fast on Friday. So all they were able to do with the body of Jesus was to wrap him in some claws throw him in this new tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea and roll the stone in front of it because, because Sabbath was about to begin and they knew that they had to be distanced from the dead body until after Sabbath was over and Mary, at the first moment, she can ritually and legally do so, goes back to the tomb with probably with her basket of, basket of embalming supplies in hand and... My suspicion as I read the story is that she gets halfway and she begins to realize to herself, oh, but who's going to roll away the stone, that giant stone that we put in front to make sure the grave robbers didn't get in and mess with the body? I wonder if she wasn't halfway there when she started to think about this and to kick herself to say, I should have woken up a couple of those sleeping disciples and made them come with me. When she gets close enough and she sees this sort of dark circle where there should be a rock, she sees a hole. And she realizes that somehow someone has already removed the stone and she immediately is filled with panic and horror because she knows what that means. It means that most likely, the grave, the grave robbers have shown up on the Jewish Sabbath, which probably means they were Gentiles if they were willing to do this on the Sabbath, roll the stone away and trifle through the tomb and maybe even take the body itself. So she turns around and, and John tells us she runs back to where Peter and the other disciple were sleeping, tells them what had happened. We're told that they turn and v line for the tomb themselves. And... They too, probably in their grief-stricken minds, are assuming that a grave robber or group of grave robbers have done this and they don't even know. Maybe they're still in the tomb, right? They don't know what they're going to arrive to. They don't know what has happened to Jesus' body while the stone has been rolled away, what they're going to encounter. I can only imagine the feeling of sickening horror that that Mary and the disciples must have felt in these, these moments. Not sure what happened, not sure what's waiting in the tomb, not sure what they may encounter. But John tells us that they don't find anything that they were anticipating. It's actually a really strange, curious scene. We're told that while the disciple that Jesus loves gets there first, Peter is the one who has the courage to go in first and observe and Peter sees something weird. He sees the linen claws that he remembers wrapping Jesus in as they were putting him in the, the tomb. And he can't figure out why, if grave robbers were there, why they would take the time to unwrap the body, leave the claws, and take the body without protection over it and without a way to, to hide the body as they're transporting it. It makes no sense. Why would you take the, the burial claws off and then take the body? But, but not only that, he, the burial claws have been taken off and, and one set of them are by the feet and the other by the head. And the one by the head has been perfectly folded up and placed there. Again, there are no grave robbers. I mean, if, if this is an episode of CSI after the crime incidents happened, nobody's going to think that that they would take the time for any reason to, to neatly fold up the head cloth and place it where the body had lain. And John's point's quite clear here. This point is that the, the claws had been lain in such a way that it appears as though the dead had been brought to life, that Jesus took off his own grave clothes and took the time to fold them up and leave them nicely in their place. And it's this beautiful moment. And then we're told that the disciples leave. They go back. We don't really know why they leave as they do, but we're then we're also told that Mary stays and she hasn't gone in the tomb yet. Perhaps because she's still freaked out by the whole thing and doesn't doesn't know what she's going to see and she's weeping. And in Mary's tears, Mary's pain, perhaps we encounter what is my favorite part of the entire Easter story. We're told that somebody approaches Mary from the, from the scene, a man, and, and Mary believes him to be the gardener, a detail that only John's gospel is careful to include. Mary believes that this man is the gardener. Which, friends, I believe is beautiful. Because of course she does, right? Because Jesus is Emmanuel. God in the flesh, God with us, God among us. And if we go back to the very first story of God in scripture, it's of the God who creates, who makes what? A garden a good and a beautiful garden, a God who creates a planet with dirt and God who plays in that dirt and creates human beings to what thrive and be full and rich enlivened in this ancient garden. Then that begs the question, what was it about this person that made Mary think that this person was a gardener in a cemetery before dawn. Why would there, if this person was a gardener, why would they be in the cemetery and why would they be there so early? And what was it about this individual that made her ask this question? And I've said this in the past, but I think it bears repeating. I think it's because perhaps Jesus, his hands and his knees and his feet were covered in dirt. I wonder if it's not the case that what John is hinting at is the first thing that the resurrected Christ did was as he was waiting on the disciples to discover what had happened, began to play in the dirt, began to do the work of gardening, began to do the work of crafting and forming and cultivating a new creation right in the midst of the tombs of death. Right? That's remarkable, friends. That the God of the universe creates a world and that the Christ is mistaken as a gardener who maybe can only be seen as such because he himself is covered in dirt. The resurrected body of the Christ with dirt stains on the knees, on the hands, which I think brings, brings a really important reality to bear on us and on this whole conversation as we move forward in this Eastertide season. And it is that, if it is the case that Jesus was mistaken for the gardener for good reasons, such as dirt on his hands and on his feet and on his knees, then it means that the resurrection is not in discontinuity with this planet, with this first creation and with this reality, but that it, it lives in contact with it. It's not totally other. It's not some separate ethereal existence off in a by and by. It means that death after life, the life that comes after death is actually can be active and present in participating as we humans on this side of, of the grave are ourselves at work trying to make this world what God dreams that it might be. We're told that the resurrected one gets his hands dirty, which means that God is not interested in sort of discarding the first creation, this world that God has made and called good, but that God is, God is interested in doing as Father Richard Rohr so, so regularly and beautifully says, transcend, include. Include and transcend. Transcend, include. In fact, Ror goes so far as to say that for the Christian, that's, that's what Easter's all about. It's not that God throws away what God built and God made, it's that God includes it and is transcending it. God is building upon it and making something new with. The first creation is a part of that which is to come. To make the land of the tombs the home of the dead into a garden? That sounds like the kind of stuff that the Jewish God Yahweh is about. This is like a scene of Genesis 2.0. It's not a scene of of cosmic undo. It's not the scene of Lazarus. Lazarus was brought back from death to life. But, but, But resurrection and Easter Sunday, it's about Jesus going into death fully and completely and then coming out triumphant on the other side and working with us in that resurrection reality, creating this kind of wild bridge of, of, of life, of death, of future, of past. The idea that, that there is a whole new world being made and created right here in the midst of this first world that God has made and created and all of it is good and all of it is saturated with the divine. So friends, what happens to the forest floor after the forest fire has ripped through and taken out the vegetation and the life. I invite you for this Easter tide to join with us at Eastside as we as we look at how has the Creator made a forest to have this impetus to rebuild itself? What are the stages of rebuilding of something new, of life after death? Creating this new ecosystem on the other side. If Easter for us is a metaphor for the season of resurrection, how can a forest being rebuilt and renewed on the other side of a fire? be a profound metaphor for us this year as we come through the fires of the pandemic and of the loss into that new reality that God dreams for each and every one of us. So friends, I invite you to join us in this season and in this time as we seek collectively and as individually to put this world back together and to see what new thing God is at work doing through our lives, through your lives. Maybe so, in the name of God, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer. Amen and amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's East Side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.